Our scripture this morning comes from Paul's letter to the Romans. I'll be reading chapter 12, verses 9 through 21. Love should be shown without pretending. Hate evil and hold on to what is good. Love each other like members of your own family. Be the best at showing honor to one another. Don't hesitate to be enthusiastic. Be on fire in the spirit as you serve the Lord. Be happy in your hope. Stand your ground when you are in trouble. Devote yourselves to prayer. Contribute to the needs of God's people and welcome strangers into your home. Bless people who harass you. Bless them and do not curse them. Be happy with those who are happy and cry with those who are crying. Consider everyone as equal and don't think that you're better than anyone else. Instead, associate with people who have no status. Do not think that you're so smart. Don't pay back anyone for their evil actions with evil actions, but show respect for what everyone else believes is right and good. If possible, to the best of your ability, live at peace with all people. Don't try to get revenge for yourselves, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. It is written, revenge belongs to me, and I will pay back, says the Lord. Instead, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. By doing this, you will pile burning coals of fire upon his head. Do not be defeated by evil, but defeat evil with good. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So we're still in Romans. You may be surprised or you may not be surprised. We've been in Romans for a good portion of August, probably part of July as well. Um, And we're coming close to the end, but um, we're continuing there. And we have made it all the way to chapter 12. And, And if you were here last week, and if you recall, Paul talks to the Romans in chapter 12 about not being conformed to the patterns of the world, but being transformed by the renewing of their minds. And he, and he puts us all in the context of offering themselves as a living sacrifice to God as their spiritual act of worship. And so as we get going today, just a, a couple reminders from last week. Uh, so the first one is, is Paul thinks about um, the life in Christ and the life in the world in a very dualistic way. Like you, you're either in and serving the kingdom of God or you're serving or in the kingdom of the world. There, there's no unaffiliated, there is no neutral person, there's no absolutely free person in sort of the economy of the world that Paul envisions. You are either a slave to sin, following the things of the world, or you are a slave sold out to God, following the things of God. And so what Paul has done in in the last uh, first bit of chapter 12 is is he says this. He says, don't be conformed to the patterns of the world, right? He says that the world is is out there and, and we are shaped by the cultures and the things around us. And so we are to be understanding that, that we are shaped by the things of the world and, and we need to actively resist that. Right, it, it's, I, I don't know that Paul would necessarily say that there's this sort of nefarious action in the world that everything's set against us, but I do think that Paul would say is that sort of the unexamined life, the life without Christ, pushes us in a certain direction, and culture pushes us in a certain direction, and that is generally not speaking, not towards Jesus. And so he says we have to make sure that we're not conformed by the patterns of the world that says me first or mine first or my people first, however we want to put that, but rather we need to be transformed, right? Transformed into something else. Passively, we will be conformed into a particular pattern, a particular way of looking at the world, a particular way of acting within the world, 
So we need to be actively transformed. Paul talks about transformation coming through the work and the act of the Spirit of God. So he says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind, by thinking on the things of God, by, by considering the things of God, by, by, by actively focusing on how we might allow God and the Spirit of God to transform us more into the image of Christ. It is important that there are both active and passive things here. The transformation does not come by working harder, by pulling us up by our bootstraps, but by attending to the Spirit and allowing God to mold us and shape us into the image of Christ. That, that is what Paul is getting at here. He, he, he knows that by our best efforts, we accomplish very little. Right? So, so if you remember back to, you know, seven, eight, nine, you know, I, I want to do what is right, and yet I'm not very good at doing it. In fact, he says, I'm terrible at doing it. I never do it. In fact, I do the things I don't want to do, and the things I want to do, I don't do. Even though in my mind and my heart, I know what is right, I don't do these things. And Paul describes that just that tension that is there when we try on our own best efforts to achieve the things of God. But then Paul says, thanks be to God, through our Lord Jesus Christ, and begins to talk about how it is by the power of the Spirit at work in us that we, we are able to be transformed by God as we work, as we submit ourselves, and as we work out who we are in Christ. And so where, where we go today in the, latter, in the last bit of chapter 12 is Paul really describing um, what this transformed life looks like. So he says, do not be conformed, but be transformed, right? By the renewing of your mind. And then you'll know what is good and right and perfect. And so that might leave us wondering, well, what does this life look like? What does the transformed life really look like? Now, Paul gives a, a, a long list of things that we saw here, right? I mean, I, I read through those things. I just kind of listed them out the other day, just kind of like, let's just jot down the different things that Paul says we ought to be or ought to do. And it's a long list. If you notice, largely speaking, it is, it is a descriptive text, right? It, it describes what this community and this life of Christ might look like, right? Paul's not giving us things to do. Like, if you check off all these things, then you're good. It's important to note that. But Paul's not saying, well, if you just do all these things, then you're in, you're right, you're good, things will go wonderful for you, you will be transformed, what Paul does do is he says that, that he begins to describe these things that people ought. And he begins to describe the shape of this life of what it might look like for a community and a person who is in Christ being transformed into the image of Christ. And so he begins to describe these things. Again, we're to look at these things saying this is probably ought to describe the church in our lives, but, but again, it's not a checklist. I just want to make sure that we're very, very clear on that. It's not a checklist. It's not something to say, well, if, as long as I've got these things, then I'm good. But rather, what Paul is saying is our lives are shaped in certain ways, and the community of Christ that is shaped after Christ will look like this. These will, this will be the nature of the community of Jesus Christ. And I think it's also important to note that, that when Paul describes this, the first thing that he talks about is he says, basically, let love be genuine. Let love be genuine. Or in this particular, the version we use, love should be shown without pretending. Essentially, what Paul says, if you like, go back to the original languages, is your love should be love. Right? Your love should be genuine love. 
Your genuine love should be genuine love. It, it, it's, a, it's called a tautology. And in, in, anyway, let's just move past. I said that. Ignore that. It is, anyway. Um, but he's saying it is what it is, right? He, he's just making sure that when, when, when people are practicing these things and seeking after what this transformed life and allowing God to transform them, that what they're doing is genuine, heartfelt. It is not fake. It is not pretense. This is what it means to be transformed, right? It's easy to fake love. Like we can feign care for other people. I don't know if you've ever done it, but we can do it. It's possible. It's possible to love somebody um, not in a genuine way, but in a reciprocal way. Like I'm going to love you so that you will love me back, right? That's not genuine love. It's also possible to say to someone, And you might have heard this in the church, I love you, but I don't have to like you, right? That's not genuine love. It's pretense love, or it's love just following a rule. So so what Paul is saying is in a transformed life, there is this life that is formed by genuine love, care, and compassion for others. And, And what makes this amazing and Paul's description thereof amazing is that Paul says it is not just for a certain group of people. So so you might notice that that what's going on here is is Paul is not talking about like love the people who are close to you, love the people who look like you, love the people who are in your family or in your ethnic group, right? He doesn't say any of that. The, the, The list that Paul gives includes some of those people but it's not exclusive to an inside or a specific group of people. So if, we, if I were to shape and to just talk about how Paul describes this mutual love and how Paul describes the Christian life, I, I, I did it. I don't normally do this, but I, I've got three points that I think Paul is making. There's three basic groups of people or ways in which Paul talks about genuine love for others. So the first is sort of a very general, it's, it's, it's not directed at a specific people, but he talks about um, love seeking the good and saying no to evil. Then Paul talks about showing mutual affection among like the church, among the believers. There's some where he says, right, show affection to one another. And he's talking, it seems very specifically within the Christian community. But then Paul also talks about some things that, that I would call radical love, like love beyond the norm, right? So, so the, the call to avoid evil and seek good would not be unusual to the Christian church, right? It's not unusual advice that Paul would give. That would be advice in the culture. And, and loving those in your group is not unusual for, again, advice in the culture, in our culture or in Paul's culture, But the third point he gets to is this broader, earth-shattering, radical kind of love that's just unusual. In culture, in the world, it's the kind of love that we see and we go, that's different. That person's really, I mean, that's the kind of people we call really spiritual. So those kind of, those three ways, but, but all of this was within the context of this genuine love for one another, this life of a community that exists in and through and by and informed by genuine love. So first Paul says, seek after what is good and hate evil or cling to what is good and and reject what is evil. And and again, this, this is not, it's not rocket science. This isn't earth shattering, but it's an important thing to note. 
right? It's kind of one of those things that you think, well, this should go without saying, but it, it, it can't go without saying. That the people of God, the community of Christ, ought to look like Jesus, right? If Jesus was devoted to the good, if love is devoted to the good, then we as a people, as the people of God, ought to be devoted to what Christ is devoted to, ought to be devoted to what is good. We are representations of Jesus Christ. Whether we want to be or not, if we tell someone we are a Christian or a follower of Jesus or a disciple, any of those words, then we are representing Jesus. How we act reflects on the name of Jesus. We are elsewhere, Paul will say, ambassadors, ministers of reconciliation, that, that our purpose and our part of what, who we are in the world is a representation of Christ. If we bear his name, what we do reflects on the one whose name we bear. So again, it, it perhaps should go without saying, although maybe not, that we ought to be a people who reflect well the character and the nature of Jesus Christ. Right? If we say we are Christians and we do things that Jesus wouldn't do, usually how that ends up is not someone saying they're not a genuine Christian. Usually it ends up looking bad on Jesus because we represent him wrongly. And if we do that over and over, Jesus' name is not blessed. Rather, it is cursed because of us. So we cling to what is good. We seek what is good. And we issue what is evil. That means spiritual things, good things and bad things, and that means non-spiritual if there is such a thing, right? Just because we're free in Christ, Paul might say, doesn't give us license to sin or do wrong or treat people badly. It's rather a call to genuine love. And we are to do that, seeking what is good and saying no to what is evil. The next kind of category, which has a little bit more in it for, for Paul, as Paul is talking about it, is this idea of mutual affection within the community of Christ, right? So Paul lists kind of a, a, a sort of a litany of things that, that we would characterize as Paul's instruction, how the church of Christ ought to live with one another, the things we ought to do to care for one another. He talks about meeting one another's needs. He says, care for the needs of the saints. When he uses the word the saints, generally speaking, he's talking about in the church. Again, this, this is this idea of, of mutual love, of genuine love. If we see a need and we have the ability to meet the need, Paul says, we meet one another's needs. It's also important to note that Paul talks about this in mutuality, right? It's not just one person caring always for another. It's the idea that the church cares for one another. Sometimes I need and I am cared for. Sometimes you need and I care for you. So that the needs of all are being met by one another. So that we can love one another, care for one another, uphold one another, encourage one another, pray for one another. But also even in... In Paul's speaking, these are things that are sometimes tangible, right? We might meet the needs of another's rent or help buy groceries, right? This idea that we are caring for the needs of one another so that as the church, all's needs are met. Paul doesn't say we make a lot of money. Paul says we meet one another's needs. Care for the needs of the saints, he also says something that, that I find really strange. He says, um, outdo one another in showing honor. 
Now, the, the culture in which Paul lived was, was one that was based very, very deeply on what we call honor and shame. Um, so just to reduce it very simply is your goal in life was to get as much honor as you could from as many people as you could from as high a position socially as you could and to avoid shame as much as you can. And that, that was sort of the goal of the culture. And so what Paul is saying is, this is how we show mutual love and affection for one another. If we compete with one another, it's only in how we can honor one another. Only how we can encourage one another. Only how we can lift one another up. Right? It's kind of the way of saying there's no competition in the church. If we look at the kind of the, the patterns of our world that says there's only so much even honor to go around, Paul would say that's, that's not true. In the kingdom of God, there is honor to share everywhere. And so we outdo in showing honor. We seek to look at the other person and say, how can I lift you up? How can I build you up? How can I honor you and your contribution? How can I honor you in your place? How can I let you know that you are valuable and wonderful and a child of God, no matter who you are, where you come from, how much you make, whatever? Our world is not great at that, right? We base honor on lots of different things, money, status, power, influence, whatever it might be. And, and, and honestly, we can look all around us, and sometimes we do it ourselves, right? The, the good-looking and the rich and the powerful are shown more honor and deference than those without. That happens in our world. That sometimes happens in our churches. Paul wants to say that should not be, right? Descriptive of the church in the form of the kingdom of God is to say all are held with honor. First Corinthians, Paul talks about this, right? In the body language, right? All are held with honor and held. There is nothing that is, no one that is unimportant in the church and in the kingdom of God. Nobody who is unimportant. Outdo one another in showing honor. Paul talks a lot about hospitality in this particular passage of scripture. Show hospitality to one another. Welcome one another into your homes is, is another way of putting that. Like, welcome into your family. It's, it's one thing to be kind to someone. It's another thing to, to make them part of the table. It's one thing to serve another person. It's another thing to give them a seat at your table. It's one thing to invite someone in. It's another thing to say, it's not even my table. It's Christ's table, and you are welcome. Because we all are welcome. Show hospitality to one another. It's, it's not just friendliness, but Paul, Paul talks about the community of Christ being something that's defined by this life together, this togetherness that is more than just coming together and singing songs for an hour and a half on Sunday morning, but, but this life lived in community with one another where there is care and concern and help and hospitality and joy. Show hospitality to one another, he says. And then in this sort of, again, this mutual affection sort of way, and in this mutuality sort of way, he says, weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. Right? This part of hospitality is that we are connected to one another, even in joy and pain. Right? We, we care when our brother or sister in Christ is hurting. And again, no matter who they are, no matter what their status we weep with those who weep. 
right? There's a reason we uphold people in prayer in our bulletins and in our public worship because we want to weep with those who weep. And we ought to, on the reciprocal end, rejoice with those who rejoice. And those things are often held in tension in the church. Much of that is going on all the time at the same time. In this room today, there is weeping and there is rejoicing. And part of what it means to be the community of Christ is we uphold one another in those things. That when another's in pain, we suffer with them. That's what compassion means. We don't lord it over them. We don't have schadenfreude and enjoy the pain of other people who we think we're in competition with. And, and, and when, our, when our neighbors and when our friends and when our, our brother or sister has victory and joy, we don't, we don't look at it and go, man, I wish that were me. We don't look at it and go, man, they don't deserve that. We rejoice with them as if it is ours, as if it is our accomplishment. Because we are not in competition with one another. That's really easy for me to say to all of you. It's a lot harder for me when I gather with other people and we talk about our churches to weep with those who weep and then to rejoice with those who rejoice without competition. But it's good to remind ourselves that the body of Christ is not just in this room at this particular time. It's all up and down these streets all around us. And we share in the joy of our brothers and sisters even outside this room and we enter into the pain when they are in pain. For we are not in competition with one another. We are all part of this body of Christ that moves together. It says we keep hope. We keep patience in suffering. There is persistence in prayer. Paul reminds us of how deeply important prayer is to the life of the community of Christ. For we are here and in this together and the way in which we communicate with the one who forms us, who leads us, who guides us, who, who leads us into all truth, who, who helps us have the mind of the Father. We do by prayer as we submit ourselves to the movement of Christ and the movement of the Spirit among us that we might know what is his will, his good and perfect will. Paul also reminds us to have a realistic self-assessment. I know Paul's all over the map, so that's why I am. But he also, he kind of brings it down and he says, and remember, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought. Don't tell yourself you're wiser than you are. <laughs> I'm not sure where it's coming from in Paul. I think he had something in mind. Like, I, I'm almost 100% sure he had something or someone in his mind when he was writing that. But Paul, again, Paul reminds us that, that in the body of Christ, it's not smarter and dumber. It's not, um, I'm better or worse. There is not this, there's no competition in the, among the people of Christ. We don't compete with one another. And I don't need to be smarter than all of you. Because Jesus is smarter than all of us, right? And, and God knows better than any of us. And it's his will, not mine or yours or anyone else's that we are seeking. And so we look at each other around us and come with a realistic self-assessment that I am wonderful and a creator of, creation of Christ, but I am not the be-all and end-all of anything. We have realistic understandings. We, we allow Christ to keep us humble because in humility, we are able to serve one another and to weep with those who weep even when we don't feel sad and and to rejoice with those who rejoice even when we don't feel very happy.
It's humility that allows us to do that with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Mutual affection. Notice the mutuality of what Paul is talking about, right? As you're looking at yourself in comparison to others, don't think you're better. As you look at others, think of their needs and what they're going through and be there with them in that. Show love and honor and care. But Paul also talks about things that are a little bit more radical than treating those in the in-group with kindness and compassion. I mean, that's hard enough sometimes, but Paul will go further, and Paul actually talks about showing hospitality not just to our friends, but to strangers. Now, I'm not entirely sure if Paul is talking about stranger Christians. There are some strange Christians out there, but, but I'm more inclined to think, based on what he says, based on what Jesus has taught us, that, that when Paul is saying, show hospitality to strangers, what Paul is saying is show hospitality to strangers, to people you don't know. There is always risk in showing hospitality to strangers because you don't know them. In the ancient world, even more so. There is danger in showing hospitality to strangers because you don't know with what they come. But this is a virtue that is upheld in, in the ancient world, but particularly within the people of God. You might remember three strangers come to Abraham's tent at the Oak of Marmory, and he says, hey, why don't you come in? I'm going to throw a party for you. He doesn't know who they are at that point. He welcomes them in, throws them a meal. Doesn't know if they're there to kill him, to rob him, to steal, whatever. He welcomes them in. And that's what Paul is saying. Show hospitality to strangers. That's radical love. But in, in sort of the economy of the kingdom of God, the, a stranger is a creation of God no matter what intention they come with. And so we are to treat them as such, as beloved by God. This is not easy. And again, what, what Paul is not saying is simply, right, simply serve other people. You know, when, when I first started thinking about this hospitality to strangers idea, I, I, I thought about, you know, kind of like serving in a soup kitchen and things like that. And, and I thought, yeah, that's a good image. And that's what I found this image and put it up there. And then I thought, but, but I don't think that's, exactly what Paul's meaning. We ought to show care and concern and, and compassion to other people, but, but I think Paul goes a little bit further because he, he doesn't talk merely about bringing strangers or serving strangers. He actually says, associate with the lowly. He says, do not be haughty, right? Above other people, thinking you're better than, but associate with the lowly. And, and I don't think Paul is not, he's not saying throw, throw crumbs to people. I think Paul's even going further than saying, serve other people who you might view as lowly. I think what Paul is saying, based on what I know about the church and what Paul has said here and elsewhere, is again, this idea of hospitality, not just giving patronage, but welcoming at the table. Right? This idea of associating with the lowly is saying that class doesn't matter in the kingdom of God. Or if I were to say it a different way, there is no lowly or upper or middle or low class. There, there is only people in the economy of the kingdom of God. We're told that God doesn't show deference. And if God does show deference, we're told he shows it to the poor. 
We're told that God in his judgment does not value the rich more than anyone else. He judges fairly. It's egalitarian. This idea that, that it's not simply saying I've made a space for you at my table. It's saying the table is Jesus's and we are all just guests at it. And so if we invite people, we invite people to his table because it's not mine. I don't have power over it. Only he has authority over his table. Associate with the lowly. This one messed me up this week as I was thinking about it. And then Paul will say something else. He'll, he'll talk about living in harmony with everybody in as much as it depends on us. I, I like the qualifier there. That's helpful. But essentially it says, Paul says, don't go pick fights with people just because you're a Christian or because you believe a certain thing and someone else doesn't. He's saying, he's saying in as much as it relies on you, live peaceably with your neighbors. Now, now Paul has told us over and over again here and elsewhere that, that our commitments to Christ will often put us in conflict with those around us. Because we have committed to certain ways of being and sometimes people around us haven't. Or in his culture, right, it was expected that everyone would sacrifice to the emperor. Paul would not advocate that to keep the peace. He would say, don't sacrifice to the emperor. (laughs) That's not good. But he does say, in as much as you can, live at peace with those around you. Your job is not to pick a fight. I would even say that Paul would say, your job is not just to convince people you're right by picking a fight. I think Paul would say you are to live in ways that are peaceful and loving to your neighbor. So much so that Paul will say, if your enemy curses you, bless them. In fact, he thinks it's important enough to say it twice. Do not, he says, bless those who curse you. And then he goes back and he just reiterates, bless them and do not curse them, right? As if, as if we misunderstood what Paul was saying. See, this is what goes above and beyond, right? This idea of reciprocity. You hurt me, I hurt you. It's only natural. That's the law of the world, right? That's cause and effect. That's karma, whatever it might be. But Paul says, this is not how the people of God act, not inside the church nor outside the church. That when we are cursed, we respond with blessing. And remember, our love is genuine, so it's not like we, somebody curses us and we say, oh, bless. You know, you know what that means, right? That Southern, it's really just a curse in, in disguise. You might remember Jesus said something about this. Pray for your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Bless them and do not curse them. The idea of reciprocity being thrown out the window. This cycle of violence and anger thrown out the window. We don't get to hate someone just because they hate us. We don't get to insult someone because they insult us. We don't get to curse someone because they curse us. The the economy of the kingdom of God, the the way the kingdom of God and the people of God are called to live at least as we see it in Paul. So if, if there's an argument, it's with him. I tend to think he's right. As we live in ways that seek to respond to evil with good. Not so that we can own the libs or the whatever. We respond so that we might display the character and nature of Jesus Christ, who, when he was cursed, did not curse back. 
We're to live in ways that are formed by the kingdom of God, by the nature of God, by the nature of Jesus Christ. That is different. Because the kingdom of God is different in kind. And we are formed in that way. And so we don't spend our lives plotting evil. Right? How can I get back at my enemy? Revenge is not on our to-do list. And Paul will get into this more and more and more. Do not avenge yourselves, he says. Right? This, is, this is beyond sort of this, this cursing nature. This is, this is physical or emotional. I mean, these are, this, this is harm that is done to you. And Paul says, do not take vengeance on those who have harmed you. The way of the world. You harm me, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Vengeance. But Paul says that the, the community formed by Christ looks different. Because Christ didn't even take vengeance on his enemies when they were killing him unjustly. When he could have, he chose not to. And in so doing, he displays the character and the nature of God. Paul does say, leave room for the wrath of God. But if I were to paraphrase what Paul says, it's God's better deciding what vengeance is appropriate than I am. So there is justice, and God is a God of justice. But what justice looks like, God knows, and I most often do not. Because generally, justice in our minds, you hurt me, I go nuclear. So you'll never hurt me again. Ever seen that happen in our world? Ever have that happen in a relationship? But Paul says, do not seek vengeance, but rather let God take care of it. The vengeance part. Because vengeance is mine, says the Lord, right? That's, his, that's God's purview, not ours. Revenge, we'll leave it up to God. However God sorts that out, oftentimes not to our liking perhaps, is right and good because God is God and we are not. So Paul says, just let God do God's thing. And let's take into account what's ours. Love, not vengeance. We don't overcome evil with evil, but we overcome evil with good. Right? So we do not fight the wars of the world with the weapons of the world. Violence, anger, coercion, force. Those aren't the weapons we fight with. The weapons we see Christ fight with are love and care and truth. And those are the weapons he calls his people to fight with, so to speak. So that Paul will say, if your enemy is hungry, what do you do? You feed them. If your enemy is thirsty, what do you do? You give them drink. Remember what we talked about earlier, let love be genuine. These are genuine acts of blessing to those who we might see as our enemies. Of course, Paul doesn't make it easy on me because he says something to the effect of, in so doing, you will heap burning coals on their head. That's a quote from a proverb. But, um, and, and really, we don't know what exactly that means. I'll, I'll tell you what my firm belief it means is, is that in so doing, we unmask evil for what it is. 
in dying and receiving the evil the world had to heap upon Jesus. Jesus unmasks the power of evil, which is nothing. Right? Evil kills Jesus, and Jesus raises from the dead. So, so when we respond with, in kind with love and with care and with concern and with blessing when we are cursed, it unmasks what evil truly is as evil. After all, if I respond in kind, what makes me better? What makes me different? We don't fight with the world's weapons. We fight with the only weapons we've been given, and that is the love and power and gospel of Jesus Christ. And so Paul ends by saying, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Uh, as I was thinking about this particular story, I ran across a story. I think I'm going to tell it just because it's fun. Uh, there's a, a woman in her 90s, just gotten groceries. Going out to her car, puts her groceries in her car, sits down in her car. Guy <laughs> comes in and tries to carjack her. Now, there's a litany of responses we could give to this, right? I don't know if she had a Glock in the, in the glove compartment. I don't know what, what she had at her disposal. But she didn't hit the guy with her purse. She didn't scream or yell at him. She asked him kindly, actually refused to give him her car three different times. She said no, no, no. And then she started telling him about Jesus. It takes some guts, right? Somebody's holding you up at gunpoint and I'm just gonna, I'm gonna refuse to do what you ask me and I'm just gonna tell you about Jesus. And as the story goes, as she tells it, the guy breaks down, starts crying, says he's going to go and, and receive Jesus when he gets home. And she says, no, you should do it right now. And, and he does it. And that's pretty amazing on its face. But do you know what she did after that? She took out all the cash that was in her wallet and she gave it to him and sent him on his way. I have no idea what happened to that guy afterwards. The story doesn't tell that part. He may have gone and blown that on whatever. He may have been truly moved by her act of compassion. But that's not the point to me. The point is she refused to fight on his terms. Violence, anger, coercion. She said, no, I'm not going to do that. But let me tell you about why. And then she acted with compassion by giving him money. It's a pretty interesting story of saying, I'm not going to be overcome with evil, but I'm going to seek my best to bless this person who is cursing me. A carjack is a curse. There's other stories like that. And, and for me, it seeks to just give us a glimpse of what it might look like if we are to not fight on the world's terms. It's, da it's dangerous sometimes. It's not always comfortable. But this is what we see in scripture and in history over and over as the people of God seek to not fight the world on the world's terms. In fact, as the people of God seek to not see those outside of the people of God as enemy, but as those to be blessed and those to give compassion to and those to show the love of Christ to. Because Christ compels us, and the love of Christ compels us 
to not see our lives as more valuable than others, but rather to welcome all and to bless even our enemies. Is it easy? Not really, and not always. Is it effective? We are not called to be effective. We are called to be faithful. God doesn't command us these things because it works, so to speak. God commands us and shows us these things because we are called to be the people of God, whether anyone notices or not. Side note, we have been assured that as we enact and as we live as the people of God, others will notice. For as Christ be lifted up, all, God, he will draw all people to himself. But we are called to live because faithfulness is how we are called to live. But in so doing, we become, and we've talked about this before, a taste of the kingdom of God. We don't always do this perfectly, right? If you found a place that does this perfectly, let me know. I'd like to go there. I'd like to join, honestly. We don't always do this perfectly, but we are called to do it faithfully. And we are called, as the Spirit enables, to do more and more and more. To be formed in the pattern of the crucified Messiah. That as we do this, we might be a taste. A Baskin-Robbins sample of the kingdom of God. A taste of this wonderful future that God has envisioned for the world. Renewed creation. All things brought back all things made new. Or in the language of Revelation, right? The kingdom of God has become, or the kingdoms of the world have become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Where all is made new and transformed. And we live after the image of Christ. We're just a taste of that now as we wait for the final consummation of God's kingdom. And it's important, again, to note that we don't do this by trying harder, by being better. We do this as we submit to the transforming work of the Spirit within us and as we act in obedience of the Spirit who speaks to us through Scripture, in community, and otherwise. As we listen, as we're transformed and renewed, and as we respond in obedience after the pattern of our crucified and risen Messiah. And so today, as it is always appropriate, we're going to take communion together to remind us where our hope lies. We do this not because we're good or better or anything else. We do this because of the crucified and risen Messiah. Our hope lies not in doing better. Our hope lies in him and in him alone. For it is in his death and in his resurrection that we have life. It is in his death and his resurrection that we are given the spirit. It is because of his death and resurrection that we are reconciled to God. It is because of his death and because he has gone first that we might follow faithfully the one who has called us by the power of the spirit. You don't need to be a member of this church or a member of any church for that matter to receive communion with us. 
You need only to seek and desire the transforming and saving grace that is found in the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let us pray. God, our Father, we thank you for what you have done for us. And we thank you for this renewed life to which you call us. Lord God, we thank you for you are good and you are holy and you are kind and you show us in Christ how we ought to be in the world. And as you show us, you also give us the power to follow by your spirit. Lord God, renew us today. Lord God, we are here, your people, desiring to be formed in your image. Lord God, save us today. Lord God, give us the power, the ability, and the desire to live after your kingdom. Amen. The communion supper is instituted by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, as a sacrament, which proclaims his life, his suffering, his sacrificial death and resurrection, and the hope of his coming again. It shows forth the Lord's death until his return. This supper is a means of grace in which Christ is present by the Spirit. It is to be received in reverent appreciation and gratefulness for the work of Christ. All those who are truly repentant, forsaking their sins, and believing in Christ for salvation are invited to participate in the death and the resurrection of Christ. We come to the table that we might be renewed in the life and in the salvation and to be made one by his spirit. And so in the unity of the church, we confess our faith that Christ has died, that Christ has risen, and that Christ will come again. And so we pray, holy God, we gather at this your table in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, who by your spirit was anointed to preach the good news to the poor, to proclaim release to the captives, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Christ healed the sick, he fed the hungry, he ate with sinners, and he established the new covenant for the forgiveness of sins. We live in the hope of his coming again. On the night that he was betrayed, he took bread, he gave thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples and said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, when the supper was over, he took the cup, he gave thanks, and he gave it to his disciples and said, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. Through the Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. And so, Lord, we gather here as the body of Christ to offer ourselves to you in praise and thanksgiving. We pray that God would pour out his Holy Spirit on these gifts of the body and of the blood that we might be for the world, the body of Christ, which is redeemed by his blood. And so I would invite you, if you would like, to come and receive his grace today in these elements of communion. Just by way of instruction, um, I'm going to have you come up and come down this aisle, receive from Skyson and myself, and then go back to your seat on this side. That way we'll avoid the traffic jam, all right? Um, I am going to serve the worship team first so that they can minister to us when we are done, and then once I am done with that, I will invite you to receive his grace with us.